It's 1953, Milwaukee. William Davidson roars up to company headquarters and shuts off the engine. He rides his bike here every day, rain or shine. He's 48, his hair is thinning, but he's in good shape with a strong, steely gaze. In his dark, custom-made suit, starched shirt, and gleaming floor shimes, he looks like the president of a company. As the CEO strides to a meeting with his executives, he's got one thing on his mind. A movie called The Wild One, starring heartthrob Marlon Brando. Hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? The plot pits bad boy gang members against the law-abiding citizens of small-town America. None of these outlaw outfits ever want to do anything but foul things up for everybody else. Hey, what kind of outfits? Say that again. Outlaw outfits, like yours. Davidson's inner circle is gathered when he arrives. He's usually a calm, centered man. Not today. I assume you guys have heard about this movie, The Wild One? Yeah, it's based on that biker riot in Hollister that uh, Life magazine wrote about, right? Exactly. Those scumbags in Hollister were riding our bikes. And half the punks in this movie are too. Hollister was forgotten. Now this movie's dredging it up again. Uh Yeah. But we're the only business in the country making bikes, boss. So what's there to worry about? This isn't just about business. It's about my name on the side of that gas tank. Davidson started as a mechanic before working his way to the top at Harley-Davidson, which his father co-founded. At least Brando's on a triumph. But the guy playing a psycho is riding a Harley-Davidson. Well, at least it's one of ours, right? (sighs) That's not the point. I know we're doing well, but Triumph is taking a bite out of our sales. I don't like where this is headed. Davidson should be worried. Harley's most popular models are large, loud, powerful machines that weigh in around 600 pounds. Triumph offers a fast, affordable, lightweight bike. Outlaw bikers ride Harleys, but when UK brands land in the US, riders are kicking the tires of machines like BSA, Norton, and especially Triumph. This rankles William Davidson to no end, but the way things are going, the Brits are going to be the least of Harley Davidson's problems. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. You're listening to our six-part series, Harley and the Biker Wars. This is Episode 3, Uneasy Riders. In the last episode, Harley fought off dozens of American motorcycle companies, including Indian. But Harley's got a bad boy image problem that it's trying to shake, and it's about to get worse. It's November 1947, just a few months after the vastly overblown riot in Hollister that shocked the nation thanks to Life magazine's sensational reporting. The town not only survived, but 
prospered from the gathering. In fact, city officials and the American Motorcycle Association plan to host another bike event in the coming months. As the annual dealers conference in Milwaukee kicks off, Harley's on edge. Vice President Arthur Davidson, who's now the last surviving co-founder, is about to address the gathering. And he's using this moment to call out the bad element in the otherwise law-abiding world of Harley-Davidson enthusiasts. Well-dressed motorcycle riders on shiny, good-looking motorcycles are likely to stay out of trouble. But riders on stripped-down and dilapidated motorcycles dressed in ripped jeans and overalls, well, they're all dressed up for trouble and likely to find it. Davidson is hitting on a serious cultural distinction. Prior to the 1970s in America, appearance is all important. Rightly or wrongly, it designates class to a lot of people. Successful men shave every day and tuck in their shirts. Working class types and kids dress in blue jeans and t-shirts. Clothes with rips and holes are worn by losers, bums, and drifters. But teenage boys have a different take on this new breed of post-war bikers with their cheap, badass charisma. They see them as cool and mimic them, which adolescent girls find downright sexy. Many of these early outlaw riders are veterans of World War II who were introduced to Harleys during the war. The company manufactured 90,000 WLAs, a version of Harley's WL model bike. The company retweaked the machine to meet Army specifications. But the war has been over for years, and these former soldiers are now deep into the trenches of typical civilian life. Marry your sweetheart, have kids, go to work, put in your 40 hours, return to your suburban house with the white picket fence. Most bike-riding war veterans are content with this lifestyle. Maybe they join a polite weekend motorcycle club, racing on designated dirt roads, or taking speed limit rides in V-formation with the rest of the well-scrubbed fellows who have good jobs and firm handshakes. But as the 1950s roll in, some vets find that they miss the wartime thrills and the camaraderie that go along with fighting for your country. They want to keep the adrenaline flowing to keep living on the edge. They gather in bars like the Green Onion in blue-collar towns like San Bernardino, California. That's where a couple of guys named Joe and Max are hanging one warm summer night as the bartender struggles to keep up with orders. Joe lights up a Lucky and exhales toward the blinking neon bar sign. Man, I'd love to do some riding again. My life is nothing but dull, lousy nine-to-five job at the butcher shop. Look at me, Max. 26. I'm going nowhere fast. I know how you feel, but at least I've got my bike. And Uncle Sam is selling them cheap as surplus, though I had to do some work on it to get it just right. Chopped off the fenders and the chrome. Got rid of the mufflers, too. Yeah, hard not to notice that. It's loud as hell. Bet that upsets the neighbors. Max shrugs and unzips his dusty leather jacket. Who cares? Harley's solid, lumbering WLA model isn't the only bike American soldiers discovered overseas. The British rides impressed American GIs, too. And they're buying those, particularly 
try it. For that, they can thank the drive and foresight of Edward Turner, Triumph's brilliant managing director and chief designer. In the 1950s, he establishes Triumph Corp in Maryland and then recruits dealerships on both coasts to sell his bikes. Turns out Triumph's customers aren't just war veterans. The lightweight, affordable machine is easy to ride, and it appeals to novice bikers of all types. Eye-catching models like the Speed Twin and the Tiger 100 handle beautifully. The slim gas tank is shaped like a backwards bullet, and the twin exhaust pipes sweep down at a graceful angle that makes the bikes look like they're fast even when they're perfectly still, just gleaming in a showroom window. And to satisfy the voracious American appetite for speed, Turner offers the Thunderbird, easily capable of topping 100 miles per hour. Harley's surplus WLA maxes out at 65. The Thunderbird costs a bit more than $800, but still less than Harley's large displacement Hydroglide, priced close to $1,000. And that price difference matters to the average American worker who takes home about $75 a week. From style to technical advances, Triumph is looking forward in every way, so much that it's heading toward controlling the U.S. motorcycle market. The brand will introduce 13 new models in the next five years. In 1953, Harley celebrates a milestone, 50 years in business. To commemorate the golden anniversary, Harley slaps a gold medallion on the front fender of its latest machines, giving them all the bells and whistles a Harley fanatic could want. Literally. Harley introduces the Jubilee Horn. The machine is a nice souvenir, but Harley-Davidson is about to get a very special birthday present from its longtime competitor that started so proudly. The first Indian motorcycle was turned out here in Springfield in 1901. Its makers have picked up an awful lot of experience in the half century since. In 1953, the same year as Harley's Golden Jubilee, the Indian Motorcycle Company folds. As far as the public knows, Harley and Indian have maintained a bitter war for some five decades. People are unaware of the illegal backroom price-fixing deals the Harley and Indian bosses made back in the 20s, deals that helped both companies survive the Great Depression. And then there's the cows. Harley co-founder Arthur Davidson raises prize-winning Guernsey cows on his farm outside of Milwaukee. Indian co-founder George Hendy, who died in 1943, shared that bovine passion and had his own herd in Massachusetts. For years, the two chummy motorcycle titans spent almost as much time chatting about cattle as bikes. Despite public appearances, Harley and Indian each knew how to stay in their lane. By 1915, both Indian founder Hendy and his partner Oscar Hedstrom had retired. That's when things started heading south for Indian. In 1930, American industrialist E. Paul DuPont bought Indian and breathed new life into the company. But 15 years later, he sold out to an investment group that made increasingly poor decisions. And eventually, they dug their own grave by using Indian dealerships to sell British-made bikes, whether the dealers liked it or not. 
Most of them didn't. Harley's brass see Indians' demise as bittersweet, though not unexpected. Harley President Bill Davidson brings the news home to his wife, Ruth. Well, honey, Indian has officially bitten the dust. Congratulations, now you're on top, Bill. How about a martini? Uh, I don't exactly feel like celebrating. We've had a lot of ups and downs, but there's a lot to be said for the devil you know. And I'll take an American devil any time over what's coming. You mean the British bikes? Sure. Triumph, Bisa, and all the rest of those lightweight, limey bikes. You beat Indian. You can do the same with the British bikes. Uh, I don't know. It makes a man think. Indian used to be the biggest game in town. We couldn't touch them, and now look where they are. And if it can happen to them, well, who knows? Ruth, maybe I will have that drink. After outlasting literally hundreds of competitors over five decades, Indian's departure leaves Harley-Davidson as the last manufacturer of motorcycles in the United States. Though Harley still puts out the biggest and best heavy plus-size touring bikes available, the company hardly owns the domestic market. But that won't make a damn bit of difference to the king of rock and roll, who's got a hankering for Harleys. By the mid-1950s, foreign competition intensifies. Harley-Davidson's annual sales hover around 12,000, and the brand is still very much a part of the American zeitgeist. A Harley is a Harley, and some people won't settle for anything less. One of those people is a young singer in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. In January of 1956, Elvis Presley releases his first single for RCA Records. Heartbreak Hotel rockets to number one. The king has arrived, and he's a bike fanatic. He's been tooling his beloved S-Series Harley around his hometown for the last year, but he wants to upgrade. One night, the king slips back into his black leather motorcycle jacket. He puts on his Harley riding cap just like the one Brando wore in The Wild One and checks himself in the mirror. He sneers at himself and winks. He likes what he sees. Then he heads out the front door of the family home, pausing to peck his mama on the cheek. He climbs onto his Harley and kicks it to life. Elvis snakes his way through the Memphis winter chill to Tommy Taylor's Harley-Davidson dealership downtown. Taylor knows his client well. Elvis loves to hang out in the showroom and ogle the gleaming bikes he hasn't been able to afford. That is, until now. Well, look who's here, the king himself. <laughs> How you doing, Elvis? Well, uh, I'm, I'm just fine, thank you, sir. What can I do for you? Interested in another bike? Uh, you bet I am, Mr. Taylor. We got some beauties looking for a good home. Mm, anything in particular? I, I believe I've got my eye on that uh, new KH right there. The KH model is Harley's flashy attempt to compete with Triumph and BSA. 
It actually looks better than it performs, with a top speed of only 80 miles per hour. But that hardly matters to the king. He's a fan of Flash. Man, I love that red and white paint job. I surely do. What's the price tag on that thing? It's only $905.19. That would include the 110 trading credit on your current bike, of course. Deal. I'm going to ride this sucker home. If you want, we can add on the buddy seat for $18. If you if you got a mind to say, uh, uh, take a lady for a thrill ride, you read my damn mind, Mr. Taylor. Despite his newfound success, Elvis buys the bike by paying $47 a month. It's the second of many Harleys Presley will own, a buying habit he'll maintain for the rest of his life. When news of the sale reaches Milwaukee, Harley's proud to brag about it. The king and his suggestive hips may be controversial, but he's no raging, villainous biker. In May, the company features him on the cover of its house magazine, The Enthusiast, with the headline, Who is Elvis Presley? The question is answered in a short profile that ends with Harley plugging itself. His new life makes great demands on him, but he still finds time to roll up some miles on his KH. Good luck for your future, Elvis. But Harley does not get its hoped-for Elvis bump. By 1958, Harley is desperate to stay competitive, but still stubbornly clinging to its hefty cruiser roots, while so many new foreign bikes shoot past it. For its latest model, Harley makes a few technical upgrades, improved rear suspension, hydraulic brakes, and a variety of flashy options. The finest, made finer, it's the tops in motorcycles, the brand new riding rage of America, the Duo Glide. Here's the baby that will put you on top and out front wherever you ride. The bike earned its name. With the advanced suspension and 600-pound weight, the ride is indeed darn close to a glide, even on rough roads. The new options might be eye-catching, but the $1,225 price tag is a real drag on sales. This, just as competition is heating up, it won't be long before Harley is cruising in survival mode. On the next episode, Harley-Davidson faces battles on two fronts. There's a new group of American bikers who cement Harley's dangerous biker image, the Hell's Angels. And as if that wasn't enough, the UK invasion is joined by another serious comer, a little company called Honda. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. Can't get enough of Business Wars? Here's an idea. Check out Business Wars Daily. We'll keep you up to date on the most compelling competitions in commerce today in the time it takes to brush your teeth. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. There's a link on the episode notes. If you tap or swipe over the cover art, you'll see some offers from our sponsors, and it would be terrific if you could support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. There's another way you can support us, and that's by going over to Wondery.com survey and answering a few questions. Don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. 
I'm your host, David Brown. Peter Gilstrap wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering.